The text for this morning is actually based on the entire first chapter of Ruth, so I won't read that with you again this morning. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this morning's sermon, I'm going to be talking a lot about the belief in God's providence. And what I mean by God's providence is that there are no random events in this life. There are no chance occurrences, but everything, everything is guided by the will of our Heavenly Father. And as Christians, at times, we could struggle with this belief. I mean, yes, on the one hand, while things are going well, when life is chugging along as planned, well then, we don't worry about it a whole lot. But when life goes off the rails, well then we begin to have some questions. Perhaps if if you or a loved one has been diagnosed with a serious illness, or you know someone who simply has to live with the effects of a serious illness, or perhaps you lose someone in a tragic event, well then we have some questions for God. And yet when we look at scripture, as we flip through the pages, we see that the belief in God's providence, it's something that has firm scriptural support. As we look through the Bible, we see time and again that God takes events and he unexpectedly turns them for the good of his people. We see God's plan of salvation unfolding piece by piece. And so, if we look through the Bible, one of the finest examples that we can find of God's providence, it can be found in the book of Ruth. In this book, we get a snapshot. We get a glimpse into the life of one Israelite family. And we see how God uses the wayward actions of this family in order to fulfill his purpose and in order to bring glory to his name. And so I preach to you God's word this morning under the following theme. In his providence, God shows undeserved grace by bringing wayward people home. We'll see in the first place the wayward people. In the second place, we'll see the undeserved grace. And in the last place, we'll see the unseen providence. Now before we, we jump into identifying the main characters of this story... We might be helped if we take a second and give some context to give some backdrop. In the opening verse of this passage, it tells us that these events took place during a time when judges ruled the land. And that helps us because it allows us to kind of narrow down the events to the time roughly covered by the book of Judges. It's a time, let's say approximately from the 13th to the 10th century before Christ. And that's helpful because we know that that period, it was a period that was characterized by Israel's rebellion. It was a time that they turned their backs on God, and so God continually had to raise up judges to call the people to repentance, to warn them. And so it's not surprising that during this time, God allows 
enemy nations from the surrounding area to come up and regularly to attack his people. And it's also not really surprising that God allows a famine to come upon this land. This land that was once flowing with milk and honey. The covenant people of God, they had turned their backs on him. They were rejecting him. They refused to walk in his ways. And so God, he holds his blessings. He takes them from him, from them. And he allows these various punishments to come out upon the people. And it's in this context that we meet this wayward family. This family that's facing an incredibly difficult decision on account of this famine that's on the land. We read that they are Ephrathites from Judah. More specifically, from Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread. The father's name is Elimelech, and he and his wife Naomi, and their two sons Malon and Kilian, they pack up and they decide to move to the land of Moab because they've heard that there's food there. Now, if we stop the story right here and we look at things purely from a logical perspective, this actually, it seems like a rather, a rather prudent decision. I mean, after all, Elimelech and his family, they're, they're possibly opening the way for their family to survive this period of famine. So is it actually fair to characterize them as wayward? Is it right to do so? Well, we'll see this morning that Elimelech and his family, they are wayward in two ways. In the first place, we have to recognize that Elimelech and Naomi, they are taking their family and they are moving out from among the people of God. And Israel, you have to remember, they're they're a special nation, a chosen people by God that he called out from among the nations and he set them apart. But in this story, we see Elimelech and he's reversing that trend. And rather than living as part of God's people set apart, he's taking his family and he's decided to go and live among the nations once again. And rather than recognizing that the source of Israel's problem was their unfaithfulness to God, Elimelech has actually begun to question God's faithfulness. He's begun to question whether God could really provide for his people. And to further highlight the waywardness of his decision to move out from among the people of God, we need to recognize that Elimelech and his family, they're not just moving anywhere. They're moving to live among the Moabites. And the Moabites, they have a particularly long and troubled history with the nation of Israel. If we look back already to the time of the Exodus, when the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt, it was the Moabites who refused to allow them to travel through their land. And not only did they refuse them entry, but if we look through Numbers 22 through 24, we see that they hired Balaam, this sorcerer, to come out and to curse the people of God. And this is actually another example 
of God's providence. It's another example where he turns those curses into blessings. But this troubled history, it continues. And closer to our story, we see that the king of Moab, Eglon, during the period of the judges, he came down and he conquered Israel. And they were under his dominion for 18 years until God raised up Ehud, that left-handed warrior, that judge who slayed the king of Moab and redeemed the people of Israel. The history between the Moabites and the people of Israel, it was a history that was characterized by animosity and tension. And so as we see these pieces start to fit together, we realize the waywardness of Elimelech's decision. Rather than live among the people of God, he chose to live among the Moabites, a nation which God characterized as one of his most detested enemies. But Elimelech and his family, they're also wayward in a second way. And we read in verse 4 that Malon and Kilion, the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi, they go and they marry Moabite women, the first named Orpah and the second named Ruth. And this decision, it, it can also be understood in the context of all of Scripture. For nowhere in the Bible do we find the practice of a believing partner marrying an unbelieving partner that meets with God's approval, that receives his encouragement. Instead, we recognize that it is a dangerous practice. All we have to do is look at an account like Numbers 25, where the Israelites began to engage with Moabite women and they were led astray after their faith practices. Elimelech and Naomi, in many ways, they were allowing their sons to play with proverbial fire and they were opening the door for them to fall into the detestable faith practices of the Moabites, practices which included things like child sacrifice. It was an incredibly foolish decision. And yet God, in his providence, he's able to use even these foolish decisions in order to further his sovereign plan. But it's a plan that comes at a great personal cost to this family. For we read in verse 3 that Elimelech dies. And shortly thereafter, in verse 5, that Malon and Kilion, the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi, they die as well. And so in the course of, of these three short verses, the family line of Elimelech is essentially brought to an end. And in a society that was dominated by male headship, Naomi is left a widow with just her two childless daughter-in-laws to comfort her. And when we look at these events, it's very easy for us to jump to a quick conclusion, to see that, or to argue that God has, has punished these men on account of their sinful actions. He has struck them dead for what they've done. And some commentators do so. But we need to be cautious with that because there's not necessarily enough in our text 
to jump to such a conclusion. What we can say is that these deaths, they do not happen outside of the will of God. They do serve a purpose in his plan, and they happen for a reason. Now, before we stop this morning, and we decide to wag our fingers at Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kilion and their foolish decisions, we would do well to see what this text is saying to us today. And perhaps I can do so by asking you a question. Have you ever experienced famine in your land? And no, I guess for, for most of you, not a physical famine. But I think all of us here today, we know what it's like to experience periods of spiritual famine. Periods where it's difficult to feel God's closeness. It's tough to see how he is in charge. It's hard to see how this fits into his plan. And during those times, we should ask ourselves, how did we react? And I won't presume to speak to you, for you this morning, but I can tell you that I've had times where I've been incredibly frustrated with God's plan. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do things my own way for a while. You know what, God? We've tried things your way, and it's clearly not working out, so we're just going to go and try things my way for a while. And when we think about that, such a reaction, it's not that different from Elimelech and Naomi, is it? We too, we can be so prone to want to take things into our own hands. And we too can be so guilty of putting ourselves in situations that pose a direct challenge, a direct hazard to our faith. And when we boil it down, we too by nature, we're wayward people. And so on account of this, there are times that God has to allow things to get even more difficult in order to bring us back. There are times, like the, like the story of the prodigal son, where we need to be broken down completely before we're willing to come home. And God's ways, they can be difficult. Sometimes they can take a long time, a time where we're given no answers. And yet we could take comfort from this story in knowing that God does not forget about this family. God doesn't quit caring for them. He certainly doesn't cut them out of his plan. But in his time, at just the right time, God brings them back. So we would do well this morning to reflect on those periods of spiritual famine in our own lives. And we shouldn't do this lightly like we're so prone to do. As we like to laugh them off as the days of youth, kids being kids, right? Or periods of poor judgment. We need to recognize them as the willful disobedience that they were. 
And yet we can give thanks to God that in his undeserved grace, he didn't leave us in the land of Moab. And so we'll see in the second place God's undeserved grace. The text tells us that in the course of time, God sends word to Moab that there's food once again in the land of Israel. And when Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they hear about this, they decide to go back, to return to the land of Judah. And for Naomi, this is kind of a logical decision. I mean, after all, she has nothing holding her to the land of Moab. But her two daughters-in-law, they're actually in a different situation. And it seems like at some point in time, on the way back to Bethlehem, the reality of these girls' situation, it dawns on Naomi. And so she decides to stop, and she decides to have a heart-to-heart with these girls. After all, she's going home a widow. Virtually no inheritance, no sons. She has nothing left to offer these girls. And so she says to them, please go home. May God be as kind to you as, as you've been to me and to my sons. And perhaps you'll find happiness in the home of another husband. There's clearly a special relationship between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. She wants them to be happy. She wants them to have a life, an inheritance, a husband to raise children. But she recognizes that that is virtually impossible for them as foreigners living in the land of Israel. But Ruth and Orpah, they refuse. They tell Naomi, no, we will go with you. And on account of this, Naomi has to get even more blunt And she has to paint a real clear picture of what these girls are facing. Because the only real possibility for these girls to be included among the people of God is through what is called the laws of the leveret marriage, described in Deuteronomy 25. And these laws, they essentially say that that if a brother were to die and to leave behind a widow without children, then a brother or a close male relative could marry that widow and in that way provide the opportunity for that family line to continue. But in Naomi's case, she recognizes that that's not really a possibility. And so we read in the text that she says to them, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Naomi implores the girls to be real about this situation. Go back, she says. At least there you'll have hope. And it seems like at this time that Orpah is overwhelmed by the reality of the situation that she is facing. And so, even though she loves her mother-in-law, and she weeps with her, she recognizes that it's probably easiest and best for her to return to her people, her gods, her culture. But Ruth, 
Ruth will not be swayed. And in her words, we actually see the extent of her commitment. For Ruth is not just being a a committed daughter-in-law to Naomi. I'm sure that's part of the picture. But Ruth wants to make a commitment to Naomi's people, and more importantly, to Naomi's God. She wants to be counted among the children of Israel, and she is willing to leave everything behind in order to do so. For Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And not only does Ruth speak these beautiful words, this confession of faith, but she calls down the Lord, the God of Israel, to act as her witness, to hold her accountable for what she has said. And we need to stop for a a moment just to marvel at what God is doing here. Because there's a remarkable thing that's happening. God has used the wayward actions of this Israelite family to bring salvation to Ruth, to this Moabitess, this citizen of a heathen nation. And God has changed her heart so that she is willing to leave it all behind, everything, in order to be counted among the people of God. And we get then a glimpse, a foretaste of the greater work that God was going to do when he would call in people from all tribes, from all nations. Through the sacrifice And the death of Jesus Christ, a new covenant is put in place. A covenant which opens the way for Gentiles like you and me to be counted among the people of God. And this story then, it gives us a glimpse of the grace and mercy that is coming through Jesus Christ. For God doesn't pick Ruth because she has a particularly prominent position or because she's powerful or likable or beautiful. God shows her grace because he chose to, because it's part of his sovereign plan and because it brings about the fulfillment of his plan of salvation. And that's the same thing that God continues to do today as he calls out people like you and me. God offers us grace, not because of anything that we could do, not because of anything we're going to do. He's fully aware of our rebellious nature. He's aware of the skeletons in the closet. And yet he offers us grace because it's part of his sovereign plan. Let's today then make sure that we echo the words of Ruth as we boldly speak our own confession. 
For we need to recognize that that difficult decision faced by Ruth and Orpah, that's a decision that still faces all of mankind today. All of mankind at some point in time comes to the crossroads of life, comes to that proverbial place which Jesus describes as the wide or the narrow gate, the road of condemnation or the road of salvation. And sadly, so many, like Orpah, they choose to go through the wide gate because they recognize that going through the narrow gate, that's a decision that comes at a great personal cost. It's much easier to join the millions of Orpahs who return to what is easy and to what is comfortable. And that's the challenge that faces us today. It's much easier to live as the world does, to do what the world does, to serve the gods that the world puts before us. And at a time like this, we need to remember the words of John 15, verse 19, where God says, you do not belong to the world, but I have called you out of the world. Brothers and sisters, let's thank God for changed hearts. Hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit as we make our confession today that Christ is Lord. As we choose to leave behind our natural homeland so that we too may be counted among the people of God. Recognizing that this too is part of his providence. And we'll see in the last place that unseen providence from God. Sadly, as Naomi, as she returns home to Bethlehem, she doesn't have this bird's eye view of the story that we have today. She can't see the entirety of the narrative. She doesn't see how that narrative will fit into scripture. And so she struggles. She struggles with the reality of life. And that reaction that's evident upon her return to Bethlehem. For we hear that when she returns to Bethlehem, the whole town is abuzz. Everyone's talking. Could this be Naomi, this woman that left so long ago? And for her part, Naomi doesn't even want to, she doesn't even want to be associated with that woman who left so long ago. She says to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi feels rejected. She feels deprived of God's love. And what a lesson that is for us today. Because we too in our own lives, we have so many opportunities to feel discouraged. There are so many times when we think the Lord has brought us back empty. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon us. And we so quickly, we want to stop and we want to wag the finger at God. We want to question his decisions. And what we don't realize is that the reality of our problems, like Naomi's, it rests 
in the weakness of our human faith. Our discouragement, it is centered in our inability to keep God's covenant faithfulness in focus. That was the problem with Elimelech and Naomi as well. They had forgotten about God's faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They'd forgotten about the mighty deeds that he'd done, the parting of the Red Sea, the fall of Jericho. And as Christians today, we can be so prone to think that if we had been there, if we'd been in their shoes, well, we would have remembered. Surely we would have believed. And yet our situation, in many ways, we can be found as, as having done worse. Because we have the entire book of Ruth. We see what God's plan was for Ruth the Moabitess. How he, how he changed her heart. He brought her in. He made her part of the people of God. And not only that, but he gave her one of the most prominent positions in all of Israel's history as the great-grandmother of the mighty King David. And we also have the entirety of the Bible. We see God's plan of salvation. We see how he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to suffer and to die on our behalf. And we see how he sent him to be born a man of the line of David. And this amazing plan of salvation, it has paved the way for people like you and me to be brought in, to be counted among the people of God, to be considered sons and daughters of the living God. So like Ruth, we must place our hope and our confidence in God's plan. A plan which we don't always know everything about, but a plan which we see fulfilled continually as we flip through the pages of Scripture, and a plan that we know is being fulfilled today. Because it's the plan of God our Father. It's the plan of a God who shows love to a people undeserving of his love. A God who shows love to wayward people. So though our situations can be difficult, and there are times that we face dark places, times of trial, and a lack of understanding. We need to trust in God's plan to approach the world each day with that in mind, because from that perspective, we could say the words of Romans 8, verse 28, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So may you all Continue to love the Lord your God, to hold on to his promises, and to be comforted by his providence, his mercy, and his undeserved grace. Amen.